You can summarize this entire message today with three words. And I'm hoping that these three words will stick with you all week. In fact, my hope would be that when you wake up tomorrow, that when your feet hit the floor, that these three words become the first thing that you say. Here's what they are. Jesus is better. Our text today is gonna show us that Jesus is better than the best thing that the Jews had ever known, namely the law. Jesus is better than the greatest prophet they had ever known, namely Moses. And what you need to know is that Jesus is better than your past. Jesus is better than the works that you do that you think somehow make you right before God. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I'm gonna try and help you understand how all the things that you've tried to do to sort of balance the scales of justice in terms of make right on the wrongs that you've done, Jesus is better than that. Jesus is better than the sorrow that you're wrestling with. He's better than anything that you'll be offered this next week. He's better than what you were offered last week. And this text points us from the law to the person and work of Jesus. Our text today is really a hinge for what it means to be a follower of Jesus, namely that Jesus is better than anything that you've ever believed, he's better than anything you've ever trusted in, and he's better than anything that you place your confidence in. Here's the deal. What I'm gonna share with you today, if you're a follower of Jesus, is not new. But that's part of the problem, isn't it? Part of the problem is, as one person said, the problem with the human race is that we remember what we should forget and we forget what we should remember. Let me read that again. The problem with the human race is that we remember what we should forget. In other words, like the Apostle Paul said, this one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and pressing on towards what is ahead. So instead we Remember what we should forget, and we forget what we should remember. So if you're here today and you're discouraged, I've got good news for you. Jesus is better than whatever's discouraging you. If you're here today and you blew it last week with some things that you gave into, I want you to know Jesus is better than your mistakes. If you woke up this morning at three in the morning and remembered things from your past and suddenly you were just flooded with guilt and the devil got in your grill at two in the morning. I want to tell you, Jesus is better than your memories. And if in the last week you were like, man, I am killing it. (laughs) Our sales are up, my kids are perfect, the lawn doesn't need to be mowed, everything's awesome, and you came into church like the bomb, just so you know, Jesus is better (laughs) than you. Oh, that's such good news. Because it won't be long, brother, sister, till somebody finds out who the real you is. So, the last couple of weeks we've been talking about the concept of the fullness of Jesus. We learned in verse 14 that there's this connection between the glory of God and the fullness of Jesus. Jesus is described by John as we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In other words, the glory of Jesus that John saw, he summarizes in this idea of grace and truth. So he's full of glory. That fullness of glory is described as grace and truth. And then we saw that this fullness has other implications, that it not only tells us something about Jesus, but it also, out of this fullness of who Jesus is, we then receive, if you're a follower of Jesus. 
Verse 16 says, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. And what we've learned is that the fullness of Jesus is not just about him. I mean, it is that he is glorious and he's full of truth and full of grace, but it is a miraculous reality that out of the fullness of all that Jesus is, he then gives to those who would call themselves his followers. So believers receive in and through and because of who and what Jesus is. Trace back every grace gift that you have Trace back anything that you've received, and ultimately, Jesus is the source. What John wants you to know is that Jesus is better. He started by identifying he's the Word. In the beginning was the Word. He's better than any worldly philosophy. He's better than anything in the created order because as we've seen, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. That's verse three. He's better than anything that defines itself as light in chapter one and verse four. He's better than John the Baptist in chapter one and verse six. Even though he comes into the world and the world doesn't understand him, the world doesn't overcome him. Why? Because he's better. And now we come to The fact that Jesus is better than the law. Hmm. Jesus is better than the law, and what you're going to see is that John uses this foundational argument because of the Jewish love for the law and the problem of the law. And what, in effect, John is saying is the thing that you think is the most important thing in the world which the Jews would have thought of as the law, or the thing that you feel like is the biggest problem in your life, namely the law, Jesus is better than things that you think that are the best and better than the things that you feel like are the worst. So what I want to do is help you understand the gift of the law, the provision of Jesus, and then help you understand why does this matter. So a little fair warning, in order to understand this idea of the law, I have to go through some important but technical things about the law or you won't understand what's happening here. You'll just you'll read it as a 21st century person and you won't feel what you're supposed to feel in this text. So we gotta go a little deep. Hang with me, I promise I'll connect it at the end. So if you're in the middle of the sermon, just fair warning, you're like, where is this going? Just trust me, you'll get there. So the gift of the law. What John does here is he identifies this amazing gospel and the supremacy of Jesus on the ground that Jesus is better than the law. Everything in this book is attempting to show you and to show me the reasons why we should believe that Jesus really is the Son of God. John wants to convince religious people who would look at the Old Testament law as the ultimate manifestation and revelation of what God is like. And while they would see that the law was a gift, John wants them to understand that that gift of the law coming through Moses was good, and it was right, and it was helpful, but it's not Jesus, and that Jesus is better. So again, we don't 
we don't feel the weight of this statement. There's emotional things related to the law. There's theological things related to the law. There's historical things related to the law. So you need to understand some things about the law. And I'm sort of taking the lid off of a bit of a Pandora's box because the connection between the law and the gospel is a challenging one to work through. So I, I wouldn't serve you well if we didn't dive a little bit into some of these things. So let me try and help you understand. First, some definitions. When you read the word law in the Bible, you need to understand that sometimes the Bible refers to the law in a general sense, like the law, like any law. For instance, the law didn't appear just in the book of Exodus. There was a law in the Garden of Eden. God gave commands. So the created order, as God creates, always has involved laws. God told Adam and Eve, you can eat of everything you want in the, tr- in the, in the garden, but you can't eat of this one tree. That's a law. So God establishes from the very beginning laws connected to his character, to his glory, to his righteousness. But when we see the law in this context, there's a more specific idea because he says the law was given through Moses. So often this is referred to as the Torah or the first five books of the Pentateuch or the first five books of the Bible. In particular, it relates to the moral law of God, which is the Ten Commandments. So for our context here, when we're talking about the law, I think what John has in mind are the laws that are in the book of Leviticus, the laws that are in the book of Exodus, the laws that are in the book of Numbers, laws that are in the book of Deuteronomy. And I think he has even more in mind as it relates to the distillation of that law in and through the Ten Commandments. So the Ten Commandments then are a summary of all of the Old Testament law. Think of it as like the preamble or the introduction. So the Ten Commandments are actually 10 words and those 10 words serve as the pegs on which you can hang all of the Old Testament law. And so when he says the law was given through Moses, I think that's what he has in mind. Primarily 10 Commandments, but also all of the laws that go along with the Ten Commandments as it relates to the other books in the Torah. Now a little bit of history, how did the law come about? Well it's important for you to know that the law was cherished because it was part of God's covenant with his people. When Israel was stuck in Egypt, God pulled Israel out. He redeemed her from slavery, conquered the most significant superpower known to mankind during that time period, took her out by virtue of sacrifice through the Passover lamb, the killing of the firstborn. God parts the Red Sea, Israel goes through it, Pharaoh follows, the Red Sea collapses, kills Pharaoh and his host, so the people of Israel are delivered from the clutches of a powerful ruler. They now are God's people, and they gather at Mount Sinai. And if you want to know the full story, you have to read Exodus chapter one through Exodus chapter 20. We did a series on this a number of years ago. At Mount Sinai, God descends on that mountain. His glory is there. There's thunder and lightning and smoke. Moses goes up to that mountain. He hears the words of God and he is given the law. He comes down to God's people and he tells them, this is what God says. Now, mind you, This is after they've been redeemed, after they've been delivered. So the law was God's instructions to people he already loved. The law wasn't given so that people would then love God. No, no, no. It was that God loved them and says, this is what I am like. 
And we'll explain why that's important in a moment. But the whole purpose of this law is in order for Israel to understand what their holy deliverer is like. And in this respect, the law is then a gift because it helps them to know what is right and what is wrong. Could you imagine if you lived in a world where there was no definition? And imagine that there was a holy God who didn't communicate to sinful people. And these sinful people lived their lives simply doing what they thought was right, but never knowing what God is like. And then they die and stand before him only to realize they violated his law all their lifetime and had no idea what he was like. So the reason the law is a gift is because God reveals to people what he is like and what the boundaries for life are. Now within the Old Testament law, there are divisions. This is important as it relates to Christ's fulfillment. Typically theologians and Old Testament scholars would identify that there are moral laws, there are civil laws, and there are ceremonial laws. Ceremonial laws are the ways in which Israel was commanded to worship. We don't worship in the same way that Israel in the Old Testament did because Christ fulfilled that. He became our sacrificial lamb. He became our Passover. Civil laws directed how the nation of Israel was to be governed as a group of people. Moral laws are reflected in defining what constituted ethical decisions, and in particular, as it relates to the Ten Commandments. So it's important for you to realize that this moral law is sort of the foundation. On top of it, then, are the civil laws. On top of that are the ceremonial laws. And when the Bible says that Christ fulfilled the law, it means he perfectly obeyed all of it. And then there's a part of the law that continues to be, let's say, operational today. And that would be the moral law. So the Ten Commandments are defining ethical parameters for all times and ages. In fact, you could make the case that they're there even in the garden. In general, it's safe to say that the moral law was the foundation and is still binding, and then the civil and ceremonial laws are no longer required in the New Covenant. That's why when you read things like in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, there's commands that are there that are no longer relevant, not just because we live in a different age, but also because those laws were given for the people of Israel. So there's some divisions. Now, what about the role? What is the role of the law? Stay with me and understand that this is important for you to to realize that the law has three basic functions. Number one, the law's aim is to bridle, that it serves to restrain sin by identifying it. Now, my guess is that you know that the law is designed to do this. The Old Testament law is designed to do it. The Ten Commandments are designed to do it. That they're designed to help us understand what is right and what is wrong so that we won't sort of go off the rails. That's not only true for the Old Testament Ten Commandment laws, but that's true for any law. I mean, you may not like that it's 35 miles an hour on 96th Street, but you're thankful it isn't 75 or that someone can just drive however they want. Or if you showed up at home today, you're thankful that there's property laws so that you can't show up at home and you're like, wow, this guy's sitting in my living room, why are you here? Like, well, I can sit wherever I want because there's no law, right? So, so there's particular laws. In fact, some of you may have kind of a, of a, of a little bit of chip on your shoulder about laws because your law is, you gotta prove to me that that law should be a law, right? And what's funny is that's actually your law. Like you've made a law that trumps all other laws. So. The bridling of sin is what law is designed to do. 
The second thing that the law does is it serves as a mirror. It's designed to show ourselves so that we can be led to the gospel. The law is designed to help us to see what God is like and to understand some very basic realities as it relates to how God works. And it's this, that God is holy, and the Bible tells me I am not. And the law helps me see how not holy I really am. So if you're here today, you're not yet a follower of Jesus, one of the things that may be challenging for you is that you may have a view of Christianity that it is a a constant parade of things that you shouldn't do. And I would tell you that's not a fair assessment, although I understand why initially you may may think of Christians that way or Christianity of that way, because you may have run into some bad ones, (laughs) some that are judgmental or always thinking about what shouldn't be done. But what you need to know is that's only half the story. The Bible tells us that we're sinners, that we're dead in our sin, and it shows us how bad we are for the purpose of not simply telling us how bad we are, but instead telling us to look to Jesus in order for us to be forgiven. That's the heart and the core of what it means to be a Christian, is that you've seen yourself for who you really are and realized, I can't save myself. And so the law serves as a mirror to show us ourselves. And then finally, the third use of the law, and we could spend three hours talking about this, I'm going to take 30 seconds, is that the law serves as a model of what obedience looks like. That there's a role within the Ten Commandments for us to say, once somebody becomes a a follower of Jesus, that then these are the commands that we want to keep, not because we have to, but because we want to. So the law then becomes a gift because of where it leads and what it shows us. And that's why Paul, in the book of Romans, chapter 7, says the law is holy and the commandment is righteous and good. The law is a gift because it reveals the truth about what God is like, it shows us what we are really like, and it shows us, listen, what obedience and righteousness practically look like. So in that respect, the law is an extremely helpful gift. The law was never meant to be an end in and of itself. And yet at the same time, the law was incredibly helpful and it was revered. It was seen as God delivered us out of Egypt and when he met with us, he spoke to us. And when he spoke to us, he gave us his law to tell us what he is like and what we are like. And that law is holy and righteous and a beautiful gift. When I was preparing for this sermon, I couldn't help but remember a moment in high school when, in the context of a Bible class, we were invited to go to a bar mitzvah. And I remember seated in the back of this young man who had to recite from a scroll of the Old Testament, and he had to not just recite it, but he had to sing it. It was remarkable. But I'll never forget when they brought the scroll out for him to read, it was this, this math, it was a, literally a scroll, and it was kept in this box on the wall. And the rabbi went and opened it, opened the box, pulled out the scroll, and you know the first thing he did when he grabbed it? He kissed it. Because of the reverence for the law. Why was the law revered? Because the law was the way that God spoke to God's people. 
It was the gift that God said, this is what I am like. Now granted, it wasn't complete. It wasn't able to fully save. It wasn't able to bring true righteousness. It was meant to be a mirror. It was meant to be a bridle. There were elements of it that helped people to know what real obedience looked like. But at the end of the day, this was a gift. And for an Old Testament Israelite, the law was the most beautiful thing that God had ever done. For some of you, you think you feel the law is negative, and I understand it at one level, but you need to put yourself in, in, in John's day that the law was revered, it was treasured. And so when John says the law was given through Moses, and when he says grace upon grace, this law that the people of Israel received was an incredibly important grace gift that God had spoken to them. He had told them what he was like, and the law was a gift. But John's point is this. There's a need for another kind of grace, or better, a person of grace. And that person is Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is what? Better. So here's the second point. The provision of Jesus. So. Last week, we saw from his fullness we have received grace upon grace in verse 16. And what we find is that Jesus is the provision that the law could never provide. And there's, there's a number of things in this passage that you need to see. The first thing is this. Don't miss the fact in verse 17, this is the first time we've heard the name Jesus. 17 verses and we haven't heard the name Jesus until now. He's used words like he's the word, the light, the light of men, he's the son, but now John makes it explicit that the solution, listen, the solution to the law was not more laws. The solution to the law wasn't another kind of law, but instead the solution to the law was a person who revealed what God was like even more so than what the law could do. The law was cherished because it showed people what God is like. And now here comes the Son who reveals what the Father is like in a way that eclipses the beautiful revelation but the incomplete revelation of the law. Secondly, notice in your Bible, for the law was given through Moses. It doesn't say, but grace and truth came through Jesus. There's a semicolon. So I hope you paid attention in eighth grade grammar school. In your grammar class. Reminds me of a little book I have in my office. I still have it. It's an eighth grade grammar book with all kinds of little flags on it. There was an eighth grade grammar teacher at the school that I was a part of at my last church. And when I'd started doing some writing, I gave her my first little piece that I had written. She asked to meet with me. <laughs> Why? Well, you know where this is going, right? So she put this book on my desk, and I said, what's this? Her name was Linda. And Linda said, this is an eighth grade grammar book. And I said, I see that. What are all these flags? She goes, these are all the grammar rules that you need to review. <laughs> Thank you very much. That's a not encouraging day. So you need to know there's a semicolon there. Why is there a semicolon? Because what he's doing is he's laying two truths next to each other. When I say that Jesus is better, it doesn't mean that the law is not good, but it means that Jesus fulfills the law without abolishing the law. So it's not 
Jesus in contrast to the law, it's Jesus now completes and fulfills the law, which is what Jesus himself will say in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Or just think of the words of Philip in John chapter 1 and verse 45. John will come to this story. We'll hear it and, and walk through it in the first of the year. He talks about Philip who offers this testimony. He says, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So just think about this. Philip comes and he says, we found the one that Moses and the prophets have been talking about. He's right over there. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. And John's whole purpose is to convince you that the one to whom Philip is pointing and the one who John the Baptist is pointing to and the one that this entire gospel is pointing to is none other than the Son of God who was God in the flesh who came in order to fulfill all of what the law promised. That's what John wants you to see. It's more he wants you to know that Jesus is the new temple. He's the new water. He's the new manna. In John chapter 6, Jesus says this, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you true bread from heaven. And then he says this, for the bread is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. In other words, Jesus says, I am that new manna. So the provision of Jesus is better than anything that they had known before. Everything in the Old Testament pointed toward him. So when the text says grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, remember grace and truth is code for glory. Glory came through Jesus Christ. So the law had a glory to it. The law showed people what God was like. But when Jesus comes, he shows us what God is like. He not only obeys the law, but think of this. In his obedience, he reveals fully what God is like. He embodies the law. He is the word in flesh. He's God revealed in human form, which is why our mission statement as a church is igniting a passion to follow Jesus. We want you, I want you to look like Jesus. I don't want you to look like me. No, 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 no. I don't want you to look like your mentor. No, 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 no. I don't want you to look like your dad or your mom or some other pastor. I want you to look like Jesus. He is the ultimate manifestation of the glory of God, and our desire is that you might look like him. He says, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Interesting, the word grace isn't used anymore in the Gospel of John after this. Why? Because there's no need to describe what grace is if grace is present in a person. <laughs> and finally, the text says that grace, or rather, yeah, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We don't have time to unpack this word came. It, this is the 10th time that this word or a form of it is used. And the idea is this, that Jesus is being sent and in the word Jesus coming into the world, the word coming and the word becoming are linked together. For instance, I just have to show you this one example. Verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. So what happens is that Jesus comes into the world in order so that we might become the children of God. So he comes so we might become. He enters in order so you can be transformed. Jesus enters your mess in order to change you from the inside out. 
So he didn't come just to fulfill the law. Listen, he came to fulfill you by fulfilling the law. And all week long, part of the problem is you believe the lie that other things are better than Jesus. And what John does is he points to the thing that in his day, religious people would have looked at and said, there's nothing better than the law. And John would say, wait, Jesus is better. And all this next week, you're going to receive opportunities to believe the wrong things, that, that something else is, is, is better. Something, oh, oh, someone's going to say something, you're going to be tempted to say something you know you shouldn't say, and you have to remind yourself, no, 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 Jesus is better. You're going to have an image come across your screen or your phone. You have to decide, is Jesus better than this or not? You have to decide if humility is the better pathway than pride. You have to decide if releasing of your financial resources are better than hoarding them. And at the end of the day, it all comes down whether or not you believe Jesus is better. Tim Keller says this, the sacrificial, costly love of Jesus changes us, and when we see the beauty of what he has done for us, it attracts our hearts to him. We realize the love, the greatness, the consolation, the honor of what we have been seeking in other things is actually right here. Jesus is better than Moses, he's better than the law, he's better than anything you could put your trust in because he's the only one through whom grace and truth have truly come. All right, so why does this matter? Let me give you a couple reasons why this matters. Number one, this matters because Jesus' sacrifice is better than your works. The bad news in the Bible is that you can't be righteous on your own, that we are dead in our sins, and that our best attempts to be righteous will fail every single time. And yet the good news of the Bible is that forgiveness comes through the person and work of Jesus. We are called to believe that Jesus' sacrifice is better than anything that I could do. You become a Christian by believing that. You believe that all the things that you've done and the way you've tried to balance the scales of justice won't work and instead, I'm going to trust in Jesus. Secondly, the reason this matters is that Jesus' forgiveness is better than your sins. So when the devil assaults you or condemns you for what you've done, in the midst of that, we're to call to mind that our sins have been removed from the presence of God as far as the east is from the west. Our sins have a debt to them, and the law only made it more obvious. But forgiveness is possible for those who trust in Christ, meaning that when the devil tells you that your sins are great, you need to remind him and your heart that Christ is greater. When your past rears its ugly head, you need to preach to your past and to remind your history that there's a new story and it's Christ's story because he is better. That Jesus' forgiveness is better than your sins. Third, it means that Jesus' perfection is better than your perfectionism. To realize that your identity doesn't come from what you do or what you don't do. That following Jesus means that you live by promise, not by performance. There's some of you who are just weary all the time because while you know that Jesus is your Savior and you know that he's king, that doesn't translate into how you do your work. And you're trying to grab your identity out of a law by which you live 
which is if they think this of me, then I'll be happy. If I achieve this standing, then I'll have what I need. And the problem is you continue to climb that ladder only to realize it's not going to satisfy. You think, well, if we just had another child or if we had no children, uh, then I'd be happy. You think, oh, if I could just be married or if I could be single again. And there's this constant grasping at things that you can never fully grab a hold of because you have in your head what perfection is. And what the Bible would say, forget your image of perfection in your own definition. Instead, look to the one who is already better than anything you could possibly imagine. So part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is rehearsing what you know is true and reminding your soul that no, Jesus' perfection is better than my penchant for perfectionism. And finally, the reason why this text matters is that Jesus' love is better motivation than guilt. Guilt doesn't serve you well for motivation. Jesus instead creates a new motivation to obey and follow him. What he does is he, he radically changes our hearts such that we can see temptation as the lesser choice. So brother, sister, when something happens this week and you're tempted to go down a path that you know you're not supposed to go down, remind your soul, no, Jesus is better. He's better, he's better, he's better. This is, this is the same strategy that the devil has used from the very beginning, offering us what seems to be a better path when in fact it isn't a better path. Instead, the text tells us that Jesus is better. He's better than everything. And understanding this transformation causes us then to want to follow him and want to pursue him. And it also means that we can then help other people to want to pursue him as well. See, part of the role in being the body of Christ is to preach this message that Jesus is better to one another. In the same way that John says, look, the law came from Moses and the law was good, the law was glorious, the law was the, the, the revelation of God to mankind, but Jesus has come along now and Jesus is better doesn't mean the law is bad, but it means that Jesus fulfilled this. And so therefore now we can see life through this lens of Jesus is better. And friends, this is the thing that we have to communicate to one another and preach to one another, preach to our own souls. I heard a story this about two weeks ago from a fellow pastor of two guys in his church, one guy who just had a really bad drinking problem. And they developed a friendship and a relationship and wanted to help him with his, friend wanted to help him with his drinking problem and so became accountability partners and whatnot. And the problem was is on his drive home from work every day, there was a, a fork in the road and if he went left, he would go home and if he went right, he'd go to the bar. And if he went to the bar, he would drink to excess and it was killing his heart, killing his soul. He told his friend about it. He said, man, can you hold me accountable? Can you pray for me? And one day, as he's getting off work, he texted him. He said, dude, man, I'm really tempted right now. And there was pouring rain out. He's heading home, coming up to the fork in that road. And he looks, and he sees the rain coming down, and he sees somebody standing at the fork in the road. As he pulls up, it's his friend, and his friend's going like this. <laughs> Jesus is better. Go home, don't go there, go home. And that's the point that on a regular basis we need to be communicating to one another. Jesus is better, Jesus is better to tell our kids. Jesus is better to tell your friends or your small group. Jesus is better to tell your own soul. Jesus is better because at the end of the day the whole reason why Jesus came was so that you could live in what it means for him to be better. He took sin, he took death, he took your wayward heart and he redeemed it so that the greatest thing that you could think of in the world, 
If you're an Old Testament Jew, it's the law. And John would say, hmm, the law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ because he's better. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, in order to really believe what we've just heard and what I've just said, we need your spirit to like push it into parts of our hearts that can't that it can't get to unless you do it by your spirit. And so thank you that even now you're, by the spirit of the risen Christ, you're using these words to push into our hearts. And we know that there's been moments this last week when we have not said Jesus is better. We've said greed is better, lust is better, pride is better, I'm better. Oh God, help us. Thank you that you have captured our hearts by the power of the resurrection and you want us to live in the fullness of what it means that you're better. So help us today to receive this word, to believe it and to live it out. Where there is despair, give us hope. Where there is discouragement, give us grace. Lord, where there has been sin, give us forgiveness, please. We ask this in the better name of Jesus. Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Jesus, the Messiah. Amen.